0: I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Tonight, episode four of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human, written and presented by the distinguished Canadian writer and social thinker Jean Vanier. The Massey Lectures are co-sponsored by CBC Radio and Massey College of the University of Toronto. Lecturers are invited to give a series of five talks on contemporary issues a wide general audience. Since the lectures began in 1961, Massey lecturers have included such prominent thinkers as Claude Lévi-Strauss, Carlos Fuentes, Doris Lessing, Noam Chomsky, and Northrop Fry. The book of the 1995 Massey lectures, The Unconscious Civilization by John Ralston Saul, won the Governor General's Prize for Nonfiction. This year's Massey Lecturer, Jean Vanier, is the founder of L'Arche, the international organization famed for its innovative methods of working with mentally handicapped people. Jean Vanier is also a prolific writer, and in his many books he's developed the idea of what it means to be a good individual, and what it means to live in harmony with the world and with God. In this year's Massy Lectures, Jean Vanier discusses the necessity of conceiving a new vision of humanity, a society in which the gifts of all, particularly those of the weak and the powerless, are a common heritage of equal value. To record these lectures, we travel to Jean Vanier's home in trolley breuil in the north of France, where he established the very first Lache community over 30 years ago. Because the lectures were recorded on location. From time to time, you'll hear the sounds of real life, including birds and the occasional car. In the three previous episodes, Jean Vanier spoke of human loneliness as the place from which we begin the search for the new, of the importance of a sense of belonging in our idea of self and of society, and of the fears which block our path. Tonight on Ideas... The Path to Freedom, Episode 4 of Becoming Human, the 1998 Massey Lectures. And here's Jean Vanier.
1: I began the last lecture by recounting the parable that Jesus tells of Lazarus, the hungry beggar. Lazarus spends his life looking with avid eyes at the crumbs falling from the rich man's table, the table from which he is excluded. By and by, the story goes, both Lazarus and the rich man die, and the rich man from his place of torment can see Lazarus, content in the heart of Abraham, as the Bible puts it. The rich man begs that Lazarus be allowed to bring him some water, but he is reminded that the abyss which separated them in life is the same abyss that now separates them in death. I retell the story of Lazarus here, Because this lecture about the path to freedom is in many ways a continuation of the ideas I started to develop in my previous lecture. Lazarus is a fitting image for us to focus on. Exclusion normally refers to the way in which we reject other human beings. It's something we do to entire groups and classes, those who are poor or handicapped. However, exclusion is also a very personal matter. We are attracted to some people while we shun others. Those who attract us are often those who please us, help us, call us forth. If there is mutual attraction, there can be the beginning of a friendship. Those we shun, on the other hand, frighten us, maybe because we frighten them. We awaken feelings of rivalry and anguish in each other. And so we create barriers that prevent openness. Maybe we feel that if we were open, We would lose something, that we would be hurt or swallowed up. We create barriers to protect our vulnerability. We come together because we feel safe together. We encourage and support each other in the values we consider important and which give us life. But likes imply dislikes and fears. We're all more or less governed by our likes and dislikes, by our instincts and compulsions that lie deep within us. We are not totally free. From a purely psychological point of view, we all want to feel good about ourselves, and so we look for positive reinforcement from those around us. We need to be admired and appreciated just as we are. We need to feel loved and cared for. We need to feel that if we are absent, there is someone who will miss us. Just as instinctively as breathing, we flee those who make us feel helpless, inadequate and devalued all the things that make us feel bad about ourselves. This is a largely unconscious process, but we can, of course, become conscious of these needs, just as we can become conscious of our breathing. We are quite deliberately selective of friends, for example, because we can read in a more or less conscious way how such a friendship will make us feel good about ourselves and help us to advance in life. What makes us feel good about ourselves varies greatly from person to person. For many of us, material success is very important. The classic goals are climbing the ladder of promotion, earning more money, gaining more honours, acquiring more privileges. For some, to be surrounded by a loving, happy family and friends is what they want. For others, success lies in being creative. To be a success, to be admired, means that you are competent in what you do. But for most of us, it's not enough just to be good at something. True success, we feel, comes from the recognition by others of what we do well. This desire for success and admiration can be a good thing. It encourages us to work well and hard. However, such a desire for success can draw us away from acting justly and serving others. To be free is to put justice, truth, and service to others over and above our own personal gain or our need for power, honor, and success. When we cling to personal power and success, when we are frightened of losing social status, then we are in some way denying our humanity. We become slaves to our needs. In 1944, in Mazoboto, a small town near Bologna in Italy, 2,000 civilians were massacred by Nazi troops. They were retaliating for acts of sabotage committed by members of the Italian resistance. One young German soldier, however, refused to take part in the massacre, and he was immediately shot. One man who put truth and justice above his profession and his desire to live at all costs He gave his life crying out for justice and truth. History is filled with examples of free men and women who refused personal advancement, wealth and power because they wanted to live in truth and in justice according to their conscience, following ethical principles. We hear much about such men and women today in Algeria, Rwanda, Congo, Palestine and in many other places, People who have taken sides with the poor and the oppressed, who have denounced injustice, cried out for freedom of speech, and who have been imprisoned, tortured, and killed. Even in less extreme cases, there are many people who refuse material prosperity in order to live a life of service to those in need. They give generously of their time, energy, and knowledge so that others may eat, be clothed, find shelter, live in peace. We know, however, that the doer of good deeds can have a complex set of motivations. Underlying the act of generosity, there can be a need for approval and sometimes even a need to exercise power, even spiritual power, over others. These needs may provide the energy to orient one's life towards others for the good of humanity, but at the same time they can tarnish our fundamental motivation rendering it more or less self-seeking. It is precisely those personal needs which must be purified, so that acts of generosity may truly be for the inner growth and fulfillment of others, rather than for personal aggrandizement. To the degree that we no longer are governed by our human needs, we will become free. But how to enter on this road to freedom? In the Gospel, there is a story where we see contrasting needs in two brothers. It is the story of the prodigal son. The younger of two brothers asked his father for his part of the inheritance, and then went off and squandered it all. Destitute and homesick, he decided to return home and ask his father for forgiveness. Maybe, he thought, his father would take him in and let him be a servant in the house. The father, who was heartbroken at his son's departure, waited every day for his return. One day, from far off, he saw him approaching and ran to meet him, embracing him lengthily. Then he called his servants and had them dress his son in fine clothes and threw a huge party to celebrate. The elder son was furious. He shouted at his father, "'You give a huge party for this good-for-nothing brother of mine "'who wasted all your wealth "'and you've never done anything like that for me.' "'The father was unapologetic,' he said. "'My son who was lost has now been found.' "'The younger son felt compelled to leave his family. "'In today's language, we might say that he wanted to find himself. "'His choice of what to do was undoubtedly unwise.' but he did take the risk of leaving, of living alone and of searching out something new. The elder son, on the other hand, did something fairly conventional. By staying home, he tried to please his father. I suspect, though, that neither of these sons really knew their father. The younger son never imagined that he could be loved just as he was. His father gave him the freedom to be himself. The elder son did not realize either that he too, while staying at home, was called to be free, to love, and to be compassionate. The two attitudes of this man's sons are in many of us. There are those who want to be free spirits and risk new ways. There are also those who have a greater need to fit in, to meet more average norms. The younger son broke away from his father to find his identity. The elder son sought to conform. Both of these men were driven, like most of us, by forces that they understood imperfectly. What is important is that each of us become aware of the things that drive us, that we freely choose our path and affirm what we believe, not out of a sense of rebellion or a need to conform, but in order to serve a larger vision of life, to work for justice, and to help people to stand up in truth. The variety of our fears, anxieties, and desires push all of us into behavior that we don't understand very well. We can be driven by strong forces that push towards security, tranquility, conventional success. The same forces make us flee all that we fear, rejection, feelings of helplessness and inadequacy, conflict. To become truly free is to give more importance to truth and justice than to the desire to fulfill at all costs our compulsive needs. It's a paradox, though. These needs are part of our being. We need them in order to advance in life, but we also need to learn how to govern them rather than be governed by them. We can get so focused on a particular goal that we leave other parts of our being underdeveloped. That is what happened to me. To some people, the total commitment I had to my profession as a naval officer was something laudable, and I'm sure it was. But at the same time, this commitment was impoverishing me because I left other parts of my being, my heart, my intelligence, underdeveloped. Compulsions, I think, affect all of us. Some people have a compulsive need to help others, to do things for them. They go on and on, living a life full of doing in return for an affectionate response. But such people are frequently unable to take time to look after their own being. They get burnt out. What is most beautiful in them can become what is worst. Their generosity becomes their downfall, because it flows more from a need to feel wanted and loved than from a true desire for others to be well and free. In order to help other people, we have to understand their needs. Can we do that if we are unaware of our own needs? And if we help other people, isn't it so that they become free, no longer dependent upon us? Some people have a compulsive need to maintain power and control over others. They are terribly insecure if they are forced to listen. Such people are actually frightened of the freedom of others. They may be knowledgeable. They may teach and guide others but their need for power and control makes them feel superior. Knowledge and power become their downfall. Other people, because of their insecurity, need to belong in a compulsive way. They look for a group of some kind. Belonging becomes a place where they can hide. They conform and are frightened of revealing who they really are. They do not allow the deepest part of themselves to rise up. So they use religion and ethics. It makes them feel superior. They need to be seen as good, worthy and holy. Religion and ethical values are no longer there to help them to act justly and lovingly towards others, but to reinforce a feeling of superiority of being part of an elite. The compulsive need to succeed, to do things for others, to be better than others, can also become an addiction. Addictions keep urging us forward. Over the years, they take up all your energies. Nothing else attracts or interests you. In effect, they come to make up your character and what I might call your false self. When these compulsive needs, addictions, are not met, a void appears. This is a feeling literally of dis-ease or anguish. You feel lost and confused, as if you have lost the knowledge of who you are. And like the more familiar reformed addict, the one who has been cut off from drugs, it takes time for new interests and desires to appear, for the void to be filled and a new identity to be created. We have these compulsive needs to win, to control, to be loved. Likewise, we have compulsive fears, fears of relationships, "'fears of conflict. "'These compulsions push us forward, "'but they also make us unfree. "'They close us up in ourselves, "'make us blind to our own limits and brokenness "'and to the beauty and gifts of those who are different. "'Under the control of our compulsions, "'others can quickly become a threat. "'They stand in the way of the love or success "'we seem to need so badly.'" Jesus is an astute psychologist He says, do not try to take the speck of dust out of someone's eye when you have a log in your own. Take out the log from your own eye, then you'll be able to see more clearly in order to take out the speck of dust in the other. It is so easy to judge others and to see their faults and limits. How difficult it is to see our own. If we do, it's likely to depress us. So we either think we are wonderful at the center of the universe or horrible in the garbage dumps of humanity. It's almost impossible, humanly speaking, to be aware of our limits, our faults and weaknesses, to accept them and then to grow to become more compassionate. Compassion is maturity and maturity is acceptance. Maturity is precisely the acceptance of yourself with your own flaws as well as others with their flaws. Maturity, then, is to discover who we are. Socrates said, Know thyself. That remains a fundamental truth. As we begin to know ourselves with our gifts and flaws, our yearnings for truth and justice, and our compulsions and blockages, we begin to take our place in society, each of us just as we are, working for peace, unity, and justice but now we do this in a more holistic way. This means, of course, that we need some guidelines about what to accept and strengthen in ourselves and what has to be changed or redirected. Perhaps we all have such guidelines, hard to articulate, which we cannot prove because they are fundamental. They belong to the category of first principles. To me, for example, life is a first principle. I believe in the sacredness of every human being and that each one is called to be fully alive. We can only find fulfillment if we all work together to create a society where each of us is moving from narcissistic and egocentric tendencies where we are closed up in self to a state of openness towards others. We can only find fulfillment in working together so that we may all find a greater fullness in our humanity. It is this truthful acceptance of self and the desire to live in truth, in justice and in love that is the basis of freedom. Our patterns of behavior are neither good nor bad in themselves, but they can become burdensome and unhealthy. In order to grow humanly, we have to recognize them in ourselves and make choices about their appropriateness. Aristotle talks of our passions as being like a horse which has a life of its own. We are riders who have to take into account the life of the horse in order to guide it where we want it to go. We are not called to suppress our passions or compulsions, or even to confront them head-on, but to use them. In this way, we may find the fulfillment of our own humanity and work according to our gifts for the fulfillment of the humanity of others. The road to freedom begins as we no longer let these compulsions or our passions govern us. We are freed as we begin to put justice, the service of others and of truth over and above our own needs for love and success or our fears of failure and of relationships. This road to freedom is never easy. Inner pain and feelings of distress emerge as we change. When we free ourselves from the motive force of our compulsions, we can suffer symptoms of grief and a feeling of inner emptiness. What is this freedom we are talking about? Freedom is the freedom of truth. Jesus said the truth will set you free. Lack of freedom means fear, fear of reality, fear of others. It is clinging to illusions and prejudices and sometimes even to lies. Lack of freedom means being governed by compulsions instead of us governing them. To be free is to know who we are, with all that is beautiful, all the brokenness in us. It is to love our values, to embrace them and to deepen them. It is to be anchored in a vision and a truth, but also to be open to others and to what they are living and so to change. Freedom lies in discovering that the truth is not a set of fixed certitudes, but a mystery we enter into one step at a time. It is a process of going deeper and deeper into an unfathomable reality. In this journey of integrating our experience and our values, and of what we might learn as we listen to others, they may be a period of anguish. We need to find links between the old and the new, links which will permit the integration of new consciousness-expanding truths into what we already know and are living, our existing certitudes. As human sciences develop and the world evolves, we are called to grow into a new and deeper understanding of our universe and of human beings, a deeper understanding of the source of the universe and of life. As we participate in this, our sense of the true expands. Freedom is to be in awe of this, in front of the beauty and the diversity of people and of the universe. It is to contemplate the height and breadth of all that is true. Freedom is to accept to belong to a group, a race, a tribe, a family, a community, a religion, and to accept that none of these is perfect that each has its limits and weaknesses. Every community of humans has its light and its darkness. We're all part of something greater than ourselves. We all flow from a source which is unfathomable and we're all journeying towards it, carrying with us a light of truth and of love. Each one of us is called to be in communion with the source and the heart of the universe. The infinite in the heart of each one of us is calling us to be in communion with the infinite. None of us can be satisfied with the limited and the finite. Each one must be free to follow the Spirit of God. And this freedom is for love and for compassion, to give our lives more totally and more freely to others. It is the freedom to be kind and patient. This freedom does not seek self or personal honors. It believes all, hopes all, bears all and endures all. Freedom does not judge or condemn, but understands and forgives. Freedom is the liberation from all that inner fears do to make us hide from people and from reality. It is also the humble acceptance of the fact that we do have fears and inhibitions and that we ask forgiveness of those we might have hurt. There is a freedom that I sense exists, but which I do not have. I cannot always describe it, but I do want it. I sense I still have a long road to walk in order to reach this freedom. I see the goal, but I am not there yet. I love and want it, but sometimes I am frightened of the road I must take. I am frightened of the disappearance of my walls of defense, sensing that behind them there is an anguish and a vulnerability that will rise up. I see that I can still cling to what people think of me and am fed by the way people love, want, and admire me. If all that fell away, who would I be? But that is where freedom lies, the freedom to be rejected if that is the path I am to take in order to live more fully. Is not that the freedom that Jesus announces in his Charter of the Beatitudes when he talks of the blessedness of those who are persecuted or when he says, Woe to you when people speak well of you. My main teacher on the road to freedom is Jesus. I am touched and attracted by his total freedom and yearn to find that. It is the freedom Paul speaks of when he writes to the Galatians. Above all, brothers and sisters, you are called to be free. Do not use your freedom for an openness to self-indulgence, but be servants to one another in love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, truthfulness, gentleness, and self control. No law can touch such things as these.
0: I'm Lister Sinclair. This is Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Tonight, you're listening to episode 4 of the 1998 Massey Lectures, Becoming Human presented by the distinguished writer and social thinker Jean Vanier.
1: The historian and ecumenical theologian Donald Nicol in one of his last books speaks of the liberation which is death to the false eye, the false self or ego. Japanese Buddhists, he writes, speak of two eyes. One of them is the eye that is susceptible to study by psychology, which strives to satisfy its desires, talks about itself, observes its reactions, displays itself and is eminently visible. It is known as Shoga and has to perish if the other eye is to be properly born. This latter, known as Tega, refers to the whole human being when the whole human being is entirely taken up in an aspiration and prayer. Nicholl compares this to what is sung in the Hebrew Song of Songs. I sleep, or the ego has gone to sleep, he says, but my heart is keeping watch. He goes on to explain, if the heart is not to be hindered in its deepest aspirations, then the ego, that partial self, which is always watching itself and composing a role for it to play, must disappear. Donald Nicholl touches on a great truth do all spiritual masters speak of dying to self in order for the real self to emerge? The false self they refer to is not just the more visible and superficial passions, but all those compulsions which push us to seek our own glory and spiritual success. When Jesus talked about the liberation of love, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves their life loses it, and whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The life to which Jesus refers to here is the false ego, and eternal life is not life after death, but the life that we are called to now in the freedom of love. The death of the false self, the ego, is more painful in people who have needed to create a strong, imposing and dominating self. Its death is less painful in those who are weaker, who have never sought to have power. Though sometimes the emergence of the real self can be painful for those who have no trust in themselves. This freedom that comes through dying to a false self, which is the acceptance of ourselves just as we are, is also the acceptance of the world just as it is. It is also to struggle, in order that the world become a better place for us to live in. This freedom means we do not weep for the past and long to walk backwards, living a nostalgia for yesterday. It is not to shout out against the decadence or chaos of our times, nor to close ourselves up in sectarian groups filled with fear. It is not to cry out, tragedy, the end of the world has come, and to be paralyzed by today's injustices, nor to believe naively that at last humanity is being liberated and that all will be well. To be free is to see new truths emerging in the chaos, to see the Spirit of God hovering over the chaos. It is to see new and positive realities being born, that were hidden behind the certitudes and prejudices of yesterday. Every age, every generation is confronted by new realities, new tragedies, new difficulties, but also by new truths. The whole wide world and our human society within it are evolving. Every day new things are being revealed. What is important is to discern in the present moment what the Spirit of God is calling us to be and to do, in spite of, or perhaps because of, all the fears, evil, lies and hatred in and around us. Our age is an exciting one. There are many powers of division and new technologies which can ruin the planet. There are immense fears that close people and communities up in themselves. But as never before, There is the sense of our common humanity, a sense that all human beings are important, that we belong to one human family. The Spirit of God is constantly revealing new things for our age, even a new spirituality. In Christian churches there is a desire to rediscover the essential message of love and forgiveness, rather than to be caught up in legalities, rituals, and the struggle about who is right or wrong. There is a common desire in many people of different religions to meet together, to share, to enter into a process of dialogue, and to pray. This desire for unity is not necessarily widespread, but it's there, hidden in the hearts of many all over the world. It is a seed will grow and bear much fruit. Each one of us has a responsibility to read the signs of the times and to work towards the liberation of all people. There are new things in store for us all. Let us be open to welcome them. We are called to discern where the truth lies today. Is this vision a utopia, an impossible ideal? Can we really walk to freedom Or are the needs of our egos simply too great? Are we hardwired to put ourselves at the center and to do everything for our own glory? Are we too frightened of letting our true selves emerge? Can we break out from our individual and collective selfishness and need for security in order that we can work for peace and for the common good of humankind? Can we reasonably have a dream, like Martin Luther King, of a world where people whatever their race, religion, culture, abilities or disabilities, whatever their education or economic situation, whatever their age or gender, can find a place and reveal their gifts where the metaphor for society is not a pyramid but a body, where each one of us is a vital part in the harmony and function of the whole. I believe that this is a reasonable dream because I believe that the aspiration for peace, communion and universal love is greater and deeper in people than the need to win in the competition of life. But for this aspiration to become a real desire, which inspires our activities, in order for it to break through our fears and the need to win, each one of us has to make a leap into trust, trust in the life of every human heart, Trust in the beauty of the universe, trust that in working for peace and unity and in dying to our false self, we will find a treasure. But an inspiration or a call to trust comes often as a moment of grace, in a gentle ray of light, a moment of awareness of who we really are. Then we must walk forward to strengthen this inspiration and to put flesh on it by making clear choices and a commitment. We must not be naive, however. There are immense forces which break down trust. Evil and hatred and lies do exist. There are people who seek to oppress, to destroy, to kill. We all need to be helped to discern clearly where there is life and truth, and where there is illusion and death. As I have already said, this freedom is not for an elite. For most people like myself, it is something for which we have to work and struggle. It is a long but beautiful road. Some people seem to have fewer barriers, fewer defense mechanisms. Their compulsions seem to be weaker. I have met wonderful mothers who seem so whole and integrated, I have met wise and gentle men and women who are open and free. I have met people with handicaps who have an astounding freedom. They do not seem to be imprisoned by prejudice. I have met people with mental sickness who are free in their hearts. They know they are sick, but they have accepted their limits and understand the nature of their poverty. I have met many little people in small, poor communities in slum areas all over the world, who seem wonderfully free, uncluttered by the need for power and human glory. I am in awe in front of such people, and I love and admire them. There is a presence of God in them, a gentleness, a compassion, a wholeness and a humility. Their hearts are open to others, and perhaps that is why they are so vulnerable, fragile and easily hurt. And if they do not protect themselves, Is it not because they know they are held in the arms of God? This freedom is for all. Some are closer to it. Others among us have to work harder for it because we have stronger defenses to overcome. The steps to freedom that I outline here are for all of us who must struggle along the path. The first step to freedom is this, to learn that fear can be a good counselor. Strange as it may seem, an experience of fear can lead us to yearn for freedom. It can turn us around and make us reflect and change course. Fear is provoked by a crisis which calls us together to talk, reflect, ask questions and seek solutions. Drastic situations such as the civil war in Guatemala, the genocide in Bosnia and Rwanda, Can oblige people from all sides to stop and ask the question, do we really want peace? More generic causes of suffering, such as the international armaments industry and the multinationals that dominate the global economy, make us ask, do we want a world built on the simple principle of competition, where the strong win by killing and oppressing? Do we want to be governed solely by economics? Can the lamb and the wolf live side by side? And can the panther and the baby goat lie down together as in Isaiah's prophecy? Is it possible to work for peace and human values of love? The second step to freedom involves becoming aware of our own limits and blockages. It took time for me to become aware of my own limits. While in the Navy, at the end of the 40s at the height of the Cold War, I knew we were on the right side, that the communists were bad. So we had to be prepared to fight for peace. After that, when I studied philosophy and theology, I was taught what was true or false. I learned about the philosophical and theological errors in different political systems and in other religious traditions. Perhaps at one moment in our lives, we all need to live an ideal, even an ideology, where the line between good and bad, true and false, is clearly drawn, where we see ourselves as part of an elite with all the truth, saving the world from chaos and evil. Perhaps we all have to embrace the strong beliefs of adolescence before we can become mature adults with wisdom, learning to modify the certitudes that govern us as we listen respectfully to those who bring us different views. Spiritual masters in different religions affirm that there are steps in the growth to freedom. Buddhism teaches that there are four different heavenly abodes or divine states of mind. The first, metta, is loving-kindness, a love that seeks to give and to serve rather than to take and demand. The second, karuna, is compassion, a quivering heart in response to another's suffering the wish to remove that which is painful from the lives of others. The third, mudita, is sympathetic joy, a joyfulness in the heart as we perceive the weak, the poor, and the oppressed rising up in freedom. The fourth, pekka, is a peace of heart that is beyond the attainment of ordinary human beings, those of us with the ordinary capacities for controlling our minds and emotions. Christian spiritual writers also speak of the steps to freedom. At first there is the struggle against the powerful passions of greed and pleasure, against selfishness and self-centeredness. They speak too of the struggle against superficial passions in order to live more fully a life governed by service and prayer. Is it possible for us to grow to greater freedom if we are not conscious of our lack of freedom? Can we yearn to see if we do not realize that we are blind? But where to find the hope, the energy, and the desire to work towards that freedom and new sight? All spiritual writers speak of the pain and brokenness we experience as we move from the security of certitude to wisdom. Wisdom implies a poverty of heart and spirit, It is this inner poverty and humility that open the heart to a new joy and ecstasy, a new freedom, a new meeting with God. The third step to freedom is to look for the wisdom that comes from unexpected events. The death of a friend, sickness, an accident which creates a severe handicap, an apparent misfortune which breaks the pattern of our life. These things oblige us to re-evaluate our lives, to literally find new values. Such events come as surprises that open us up to the new and the universal. They can appear at first to be tragic, because they move us from the world of the predictable and the secure to the more chaotic world of the unexpected. But later we can rediscover these as blessed events. How many times parents of people with handicaps have told me about the shock they received at the birth of their child, but then how they discovered that their little child was leading them from a world of power and competition into a world of tenderness and compassion. Crises and unexpected changes can lead us to denial, despair, anger and revolt, but these can gradually become a path which helps us to accept reality as it is and then to discover in the new situation new energies, even a new freedom and a new meaning of life and of the world. For this, people most often need help from somebody who walks with them, an accompanier. One of the most important factors on this road to inner liberation is how we are accompanied. We must ask ourselves, who is walking with me? So my fourth step to freedom involves accompaniment. An accompanier is essentially someone who can stand beside us on the road, someone who loves us and understands what we are living. An accompanier is a parent, a teacher or a friend, someone who can put a name on inner pain and feelings. Accompaniment is necessary at every stage of our lives, most particularly in moments of crisis when we feel lost, engulfed in grief or in feelings of inadequacy and insecurity. The accompanier is there to give support, to reassure and to confirm. The accompanier is not there to judge or to tell us what to do, but rather to reveal what is most beautiful and valuable in us, as well as to point towards the meaning of all the inner pain we may be going through. In this way, an accompanier helps us advance to greater freedom by helping us to be reconciled to our past and to accept ourselves as we are with our gifts and our limits. The word accompaniment, like the word companion, comes from the Latin words cum pane, which means with bread. It implies sharing together, eating together, mutually nourishing each other, walking together. The one who accompanies is like a midwife, helping us to come to life, to live more fully. But the accompanier receives life also, and as people open up to each other, a communion of hearts is born between them. They do not clutch on to each other, but give life to one another and call each other to greater freedom. Accompaniment is at the heart of all human growth. We human beings need to walk together encouraging each other to continue the journey of growth, to continue to struggle towards liberation, to break through the shell of egotism which so easily engulfs us and prevents us from realizing more fully our humanity. My fifth step to freedom has to do with role models, people who are witnesses to truth and who have a clear vision. Each one of us on our road has to see and feel that others before us have walked the same road to freedom. Over the last century, there have been a number of great free prophetic figures. Mahatma Gandhi, Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa. We can each of us make our own list of those who maybe in a hidden, quiet way are freely giving their lives in order that others might find life and hope. A model is someone whose life demonstrates new ways of living in front of all the chaos, someone who accepts the imperative to remain loving and humble in front of all the world's violence, someone who does not judge nor condemn. These people in their lives show us a bigger picture. They show that there is a way to peace and unity, even though it may bring pain and struggle. The sixth step is to recognize that the road of freedom is also a struggle. It is hard work for me to liberate myself from inner compulsions, to commit myself to truth, justice and the service of others every day. This struggle means many things. It means making an effort not to speak of others from the place of our inner wounds and fears, thus devaluing and judging them. It means not avoiding those who are different, but rather approaching them with a listening heart. For some, it means visiting places where those who are different are gathered together. Prisons, psychiatric wards, institutions for people with disabilities, slum areas, difficult foreign lands. It means taking time to listen to individuals, listening to their heartbeats, their pain, their hopes, their anger and depression. This is a constant struggle, something we will always do imperfectly. The seventh step on the road to freedom is the recognition that the liberation of the heart comes about when there is growth in communion with the source of the universe, with God. God who touches us in the core of our being at a deeper level than any of our compulsions for power and admiration or fears of rejection and feelings of guilt. God who reveals the uniqueness and preciousness of our being just as we are. Mystics throughout the ages and the history of humankind have sought to liberate themselves from the ego, their fundamental selfishness, in order to live a deeper union with God and to be free to love as God loves, with compassion. There are also all the men and women who, though they may not specifically have sought a union with God, were seekers of truth and compassion and worked for peace and the unity of humanity. This union with God, this trust that we are loved by God, held in the arms of God, gives us the inner strength and fortifies our desire to be and to be true. It permits us to see each person, each event, the great march of history, and the whole universe itself as God sees us. This in itself diminishes my need to prove myself, or to hide behind barriers of power or knowledge and my fear of being rejected. It also prevents me from making an absolute of anything. No one person, no one group, not even humanity in its entirety is God. This communion with God does not create a tension between our bodies and our spirit. God is at the source of all our being, spirit, and matter. This communion unifies people and brings them to inner wholeness. The danger for we humans is to block off the life that flows into us from the heart and source of the universe as we seek affirmation of our ego in a constant search for power. As we die to our false self, we liberate the life of God in us, and in the words of Martin Buber, we allow God to flow through our hearts and our beings and thus to enter into our world. The message of Jesus can quickly be deformed. Yet Jesus came to lead us all into a society, which is a body, where each part, weak or strong, able or disabled, finds its place and is free. This new vision for human beings, which is a vision of goodness and compassion for each person, comes from a God of love who wants to change our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Perhaps humanity needs to return to this humble, loving God who is all heart. It needs to rediscover the message of gentleness, tenderness, nonviolence, and forgiveness. To rediscover the beauty of our universe, of matter, of our own bodies, and of all life. This path of rediscovery will be a struggle, but a worthwhile one. This message of love brings with it a secret, gentle ecstasy of love, a new peace of heart, an inner liberation. It is not only for the strong-willed and the austere, but for all those who open their hearts to this God of love, who comes to seek us out just as a mother seeks her wounded, lost child and takes that child into her arms to reveal the child's beauty and value. This inner liberation is also for those whose secret person is hidden behind high walls of the heart, for those whose character and personality may be built on fear, and who by themselves do not have the means for such a liberation, for all those who are locked up in prisons of past hurts and who are discovering, little by little, the road to forgiveness. And this is my theme for my fifth lecture, Forgiveness. This is the ultimate secret of liberation, to accept, to forgive, and to be forgiven, and so to become free like little children. On Ideas tonight,
0: you've been listening to episode 4 of Becoming Human, the 1998 Massey Lectures presented by Jean Vanier. The concluding episode will be broadcast tomorrow night on Ideas. Becoming Human is available as a book and as a set of audio cassettes. The book is published by House of Anansi and can be purchased in bookstores and by mail order from Ideas. The five audio cassettes of the programs are also available. The cost is $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes, shipping and taxes included. That's $21 for the book, $53 for the five cassettes. Books and cassettes can be ordered from Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6, or by phone 416-205-6010 and email ideas@toronto.cbc.ca. Becoming Human was produced by Philip Coulter, and recorded by Dave Field. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sintler. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers.